Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 108 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 108, we are going to be talking about the meet that recently was, a little over a week ago. We'll be talking about PNW Quizzing's District Meet Number 1 at Alliance Bible Church in Covington. And we'll talk a little bit about some PNW housekeeping stuff in terms of finances. And want to talk about a couple of concepts to reiterate that sort of came out of the meet or things that we were inspired to remind everybody about things and stuff to do at a meet or about a meet. And we want to talk about, uh, talk about some of those stuff. I have a discussion slash debate question about the concept of rookiness in our sort of first year back from an <clears throat> asterisk year, I guess. Um, although I guess this year is kind of like a, I don't know, a quarter of an asterisk, whereas last year was very much an asterisk. And the year before that was a I don't know, a half asterisk or something. I don't know. There's lots of sort of kind ofs going on here. So, well, we need to talk about that. But the bulk of the time of the show, we want to talk about the concept of question difficulty. Why? Like, well, well, first of all, what is it? Why does it matter? What are some misconceptions about question difficulty and how to how how should we be thinking about question difficulty in terms of both questions and sets and different sort of quizzing environments and so forth. All right. So with that said, let's kind of jump into it. So district meet number one was awesome. This is a, this is the first in-person district meet that PNW quizzing has done in 1.75 years. Uh, so that was exciting. You know, we had been quizzing virtual all of last season and the last, I don't know, uh, half or something of the previous season, give or take a little bit. So it was fantastic to be able to be in person again. Uh, so we were quizzing in tents, which required a lot of setup help, uh, but we had a lot of setup help, which was great. We set them up the uh, night before. And so that was uh, on Friday evening. So that was uh, great. It was awesome that we had a lot of help in setting them up. And we uncovered in the process of setting up, we uncovered that one of the tents that was shipped to us had a manufacturing uh, defect. Uh, some of the poles were actually overcoated with a uh, sort of, I don't know, the coat, the, 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 the protection coating that they have on it. So they wouldn't fit uh, together. Uh, and so we ultimately had to move one of our rooms from being in a tent to in an open garage space uh, for adequate ven ventilation and all that kind of stuff. But the good news is I have new tent poles. They literally just you know, showed up at my house, like, I don't know, half an hour ago or something like that. So we will be able to deploy tent number three, uh, in our set of three tents, uh, for the next meet in January. Uh, one thing we did notice was that, uh, over the course of the day, toward the end of the day on Saturday, late afternoon, there was quite a lot of condensation moisture that was developing inside the tent along the edges. So we'll need a uh, to figure out a way to, you know, maintain that it, on Sunday, it wasn't such a big deal because we were only there for a few <clears throat> hours in the afternoon, but, uh, we started quizzing at, you know, eight thirty, and well, quizzing started at nine o'clock announcements at eight thirty on Saturday morning. And we wrapped up like around three thirty or something, uh, ish in the afternoon, uh, on, on Saturday. And so, you know, toward the latter part of the afternoon, the, the level of condensation was rather significant. I think we can probably a lesson learned there is when we, 
break for lunch, uh, I think it might be a good idea to take all of the, the, the sort of the tents have doors, right? Um, I mean, doors, um, they have flaps that can be opened to become doors. And, uh, I think what we can do is, uh, open up all of the doors, uh, so that there's like a cross breeze when, uh, we don't, uh, have any quiz. Like if we're during, uh, you know, in a quizzing break, say over lunch, we can open up everything, uh, and turn off the heaters and thus the condensation maybe will be reduced that way. Um, but we'll see how things go. Uh, we did have a bit of a windstorm Saturday night, uh, which, which was entertaining. It resulted in one of the tents having a little bit of damage to some of the poles. It was not overly structurally damaged in the sense that, you know, we couldn't use it. We were still able to use it on Sunday. It still looks like it's a usable tent, but it's definitely something that we need to keep our eye on in terms of, you know, a go forward uh, sort of environment. It is safe to continue using. Uh, but it's something we just have to keep an eye on. And definitely we don't want to be using the tents or leaving them up during a windstorm, it turns out. Uh, and then, of course, one of the one of the awesome things is uh, after the meet was over, uh, everybody stayed to take uh, to dare to tear down all the tents. And I think it took us like 10 minutes, like maybe maybe 12 minutes. I mean, it was it was insanely fast how uh, everything got taken down, uh, even the largest tent, which is you know, is a fairly significant tent, uh, with everybody helping it, it just got torn down very, very rapidly. So I was very excited about how that process worked. Um, let's see, uh, there was, you know, it was, it was remarkably good quizzing, uh, you know, having not quizzed in person for, like I said, 1.75 years. So I was very excited about the quizzing experience, uh, that was there. Finals was really tight. And in fact, the, the quizzes leading up to finals, um, uh, I and J and, and a few others were, were very close quizzes. And I love, I love seeing very close quizzes, uh, where every, everybody, every team is trying to get questions. Every team is getting questions. Uh, there's a reasonable error rate. Like the error rate isn't zero, but it's not crazy. Um, uh, because I mean, you don't want to have a zero error rate because it means you could be jumping a little faster and you don't want a crazy error rate because you're giving too much away, but sort of that, you know, je ne sais quoi, optimal airing rate felt like that was happening. And so that was great. Um, but all that to be said, uh, in terms of these tents, these tents and heaters and the propane to fill the propane tanks uh, for the heaters uh, did cost a dime or two. And so uh, P&W quizzing financially is, um, no, we're not broke, but we definitely are uh, down in terms of our strategic reserve. So we are calling for donations uh, from anyone uh, to P&W Quizzing. These are tax deductible, you know, 501c3 tax deductible uh, donations that are there. We've already received, I think, two, maybe three uh, fairly, uh, you know, large uh, donations, which is awesome. And thank you to the folks who are, who are doing that. But we still need a handful more to be able to get back to parity to where we were. All right, and that's it in terms of a meet that was. Uh, one of the couple of things that kind of fell out of that meet in terms of concepts I wanted to reiterate, and this was, you know, really kind of chalk it up to the fact that we haven't had in-person quizzing for almost <clears throat> two years, so people aren't used to it. And we also have not quite, but very nearly 50% rookies uh, in, in, the, in our season this year. And we're going to be talking about what what that means. <laughs> like, what does it, what does it mean to be a rookie, uh, with in-person quizzing versus virtual and all that kind of stuff. But uh, a couple of concepts that I wanted to reiterate, the one is quizzer platform protocol. So, uh, when you're up there, you know, on, I mean, we don't have platforms per se 
because we're intense. But when you're sitting on a you know pretend stage, when you're sitting in a chair uh, up front uh, as a quizzer in a meet, uh, remember that you cannot engage in any form of communication after a question starts, right? So any form of communication would be like, you know, verbal, nonverbal, sign language, uh, you know, pointing to your quizzers to say, okay, you take this jump, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, after the question gets called uh, or started, uh, there's, there's none of that. There's no, uh, the other thing you want to, you know, make sure that you're avoiding is don't talk during <laughs> deliberation. So, you know, if there's a, um, you know, quiz master takes a pause to lean over to a scorekeeper or an answer judge to deliberate a question, uh, don't talk during that. Like if there's also a, you know, a, a challenge, don't talk during the challenge unless you are one of the captains who is either, you know, issuing a challenge or rebutting or whatever. Uh, you want to, you want to stay silent. You don't want to communicate. Um, those things can result in fouls. And so, uh, I know that's normally not something that we worried too much about in virtual because there wasn't really a way to, um, there wasn't really a way to enforce that. And we sort of just kind of shrugged and let it go. Uh, but in an in-person world, we do need to start caring about that stuff again. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of call out is I'd, I'd really love to see officials show up early enough where they can uh, set up their rooms and uh, kind of make sure everything is stable in their rooms prior to the announcements of the meet starting. So, I mean, what does that mean for you as an official? I mean, some officials... You know, if you're a scorekeeper and you show up with your score sheets, I mean, you don't need to show up that much early uh, to announcements, five or ten minutes early to uh, prior to announcements, and you're ready to go. Uh, but if you're a quiz master or an answer judge, you want to set up your, you know, laptop, uh, you want to connect to the Wi-Fi, you want to load up, you know, your, make sure you have all the, you know, the, the tech stuff sort of squared away, um, you know, maybe a half hour is a good idea. You know, make sure you show up ahead of time so that you're not, you know, rushed or pressured at the end of announcements prior to that first quiz when, you know, the clock is ticking away. Um, the other thing I wanted to kind of throw at, throw out there, it used to be in the way back times, which may have only been like a couple of years ago, we used to have a policy where coaches would sign score sheets, um, but we didn't really f enforce that all that much. And we didn't really care if coaches didn't like, like if you failed to sign a score sheet as a coach and wandered off, we typically weren't going to run around the whole meet trying to find where you were and get you to sign the score sheet. Um, but, uh, yeah. So in, you know, in virtual quizzing, we never bothered to do that at all because it would have been impossible. Now that we are back to in-person, it kind of feels weird to actually ask for coaches to sign score sheets. So this is not official policy, but, uh, I'm kind of leaning toward the idea of, you know, coaches feel free to not sign the score sheets. Um, I, I don't know, Scott, you, you were generally in favor of coaches not signing score sheets either, right? Yeah, because the way I always viewed it was if the scorekeeper makes an error related to the team score and specifically to how the team placed, and like let's say you're in brackets and a coach doesn't catch it, well, once that next quiz has started, you can't fix it anyway. So it doesn't matter whether a coach had initialed the score sheet or not. And then when it comes to any error that affects an individual score, I was always fine fixing it at any point after the meet. And so it didn't matter if a coach had initialed it. Um, and then I found the error later when I was double checking stuff, I would fix it. Um, cause I just want it to be right and it didn't affect anything else. So 
I basically never looked at whether a score sheet was initialed by the coach because it didn't matter to me for anything. Yeah, yeah. And I tend to be of the same mind. I mean, obviously, it coaches, if you want to check the score sheet real fast, um, that's great. But uh, I don't I don't particularly see the need. And then, I mean, looking forward to, I mean, right now we are still using paper score sheets that go back to our stats uh, folks who are then entering those uh, into their, you know, data sets and so forth uh, electronically, just sort of data inputting uh, all the data. But uh, that's not going to stay, th- we're not going to stay that way for too much longer. Uh, the stats guys are working on an electronic version for all of this sort of stuff. And in the near future, for some very hand wavy version of what near future means, I, I don't quote me on when this is going to be, but at some point in the future, maybe even some point at, at some point this season, we may switch to a point where uh, scorekeepers are actually bringing laptops and entering data into, say, some online spreadsheets uh, in real time. And then the stats guys are just verifying and validating that data uh, and transposing it as necessary uh, for for uh, summary stats. Now, one of the great things about that is when we are at a point where we are going to transition to that, if you're a coach, you don't have to keep score anymore. You can bring your smart device, a tablet or, a, you know, a laptop if you want to use a laptop or your cell phone, and you can just open up the score sheet for the quiz and watch it get filled in <laughs> in near real time, uh, if not exactly real time. Uh, you can actually just watch the scores getting thrown in there. And so, you know, if you notice, oh, hey, you marked quizzer A is getting that question. It was actually quizzer B who got that question. You can actually see that and and comment on it in real time, which I think would be fantastic. So, um, and so instead of, you know, having to do that after the fact, when you're rushed, you can actually do that in the process of the, uh, of the scoring of the meet. So that seems great. All right, well, let's move on. Before, to... you, before you switch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. To... Two things on Quizzer platform protocol. Um, I think it's totally fine to be more lenient at the beginning of the year and get steadily more lenient and closer to what the rulebook actually says is a foul. Um, You were saying it is um, after the question starts, which um, I believe is actually from the time the question type is announced. Right. Yeah. It's from the it's from from the point. Technically, it's from the point when the question is called, but it is very easy to not stop immediately at that point. So I recommend for quizzers to stop communicating when the next question begins in in terms of the announcement, like question number three or something like that. Um, that's your kind of cue to to stop all your comms because from the moment I say question number three is an interrogative, it's like, okay, foul, fouls could be in effect at that point. Right. Um, and then you also said um, quizzers on the platform should not be talking during deliberations. I think that's almost true, but there's one specific deliberation where I think that um, talking on the platform is not just allowed, it is encouraged. And I'm curious if you know and if you agree. Well, okay, so platform. Uh, you remind me. I mean, there used to be a situation where there would be, you know, uh, can you provide a reference? May I consult? And we would say yes, but that that was way back in the dark ages before electricity. Right. So if you think about it, um, if like the thirty seconds finishes and the quizmaster leans over to their answer judge to deliberate, like there's a lot of stuff that can happen, right? They haven't even ruled yet, but once they rule, there could be a challenge. 
And you talking with your captain or another teammate can absolutely invalidate a challenge. Like, you have lots of reasons to not talk. Um, it's similar with a challenge, right? While a challenge is happening, while there's a rebuttal. Um, but the one that is different is during a protest. Because oh, during a yeah, protest, yeah, yeah. not only do all the officials and the coaches leave the area, but also nothing else can happen after a protest. Like, there will be an outcome to the protest, and nothing the quizzers do during the deliberation or right after is going to have any effect on anything. <laughs> and so I, if I'm the quiz master, I always encourage the quizzers, once I, right before I leave to um, facilitate the protest, I say, you know what? You all can leave the stage if you want for a second. Um, but feel free to talk amongst yourselves about whatever you want. You could even talk about this protest. I don't care. We're not going to yeah. be here. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I would, I would consider a, the, the time of protest to be in terms of for the quizzers, uh, I would consider it to be, uh, essentially a, t- a, a timeout, right? Um, they can leave the stage. They can switch around in chairs. They can talk with people in the audience. They can do whatever they want. Um, it's a, it's a, essentially a, a timeout while everybody is outside the room. Right, but I think it's often treated like um, the time when the officials are deliberating on a ruling or a challenge. And so everyone is usually deathly silent. Um, And they're also kind of waiting with bated breath for what the outcome of the protest is going to be. But, like, um, I find that protests can often just completely kill the mood in the room regardless of what the outcome is. And so I always tell the quizzers, like, have fun, talk about whatever you want. Um, We'll be back and then we'll just continue the quiz. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I like I like making that announcement uh, that announcement, and I should probably do that. Uh, I should make a point to do that myself because uh, it 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 sets up the idea that protests are not sort of this crazy wild like ooh everybody's upset with each other we're protesting. It's like no, it's just it's it's part of quizzing. It's part of ensuring that we're getting the ruling correct, right? And and really. Everybody should want that. Everybody should want that we're making accurate, correct rulings, right? And so the challenge process is very important to ensure that. Well, not ensure that, but to help improve that probability. And the protest system is there to further help improve that probability. And so it's not a bad thing. It's not a scary thing or a weird thing or an un- or it shouldn't be an uncomfortable moment when a when a ruling is protested or a challenge is protested, uh, it should just, it's a, it's a sequence of events. We go off and do it because everybody wants there to be accuracy. Yep. It's kind of the adult's opportunity to challenge on stuff that doesn't involve the quiz material. Right. Exactly. It's almost like an appellate court in in a sense. Uh, you know, we're not, we are not arguing about the jury verdict. We are arguing arguing about the contents of the law or the interpretation of the law, I suppose, or process or some other sort of things. I mean, that's not that this is a very very flawed analogy, but but yeah, I mean, it's um, you know the coaches and the the officials exit, and we we talk through a few things and we figure things out, and it feels like a really long time, right? Um, it feels like it's taking forever because we are digging into a lot of sort of implications of, of things. Uh, but it's, you know, a protest done appropriately is done very professionally, very respectfully. Uh, and it's a good thing because it increases the accuracy of quizzing. Yep. Cool. Any other thoughts on that one? I don't think so. All right, so let's uh, move on to our discussion debate topic. This probably won't be, you know, a fairly significant discussion debate, but I am kind of curious and it would be interesting to kind of go into this discussion. 
what would you consider to be a rookie or what would you consider to count as a rookie season? Now, normally this was a fairly easy question to solve. It was like, well, have you quizzed before? And if the answer is yes, then you're current season is not your rookie season, right? And it didn't really matter if like, you know, you joined quizzing halfway through the previous year. Uh, let's say you joined quizzing right before the last regular district meet. Well, I, that's your rookie year. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, it was a very shortened year, but that was your rookie year. Uh, but now we live in a very high, uh, not hyphenated, a very asterisk-y world in the sense of uh, last year was a 100% virtual year uh and there are some number of quizzers in pnw who quizzed for their very first time last season and therefore this last meet uh, you know a little over a week ago was the first time they had ever quizzed in person uh is there enough of a difference between virtual and in-person to consider this to be their rookie year um that is very interesting so i guess it kind of you kind of have to first evaluate why do we even care about designation of a rookie? I mean, it's usually because we like to encourage rookies, but also kind of provide um, different awards specifically for rookies because we are kind of um, assuming or inferring a reduced ability level, right? Um, either because of age or experience, because there's lots of stuff about quizzing where it helps to know about quizzing. Um, but we kind of just, it's kind of hand wavy, but we're like, it's probably harder for a rookie than a non-rookie. So, um, we want some different awards, right? And they're usually not very big, like at internationals, internet, I mean, internationals, it's easy. It's like, is this the first time that you've been here, which I guess could still apply if depending on how you view the last few years of internationals. Right. But, um, there are different awards there. So I think it's first starts like, why do we care? Um, I think in general, it is fine to be lenient. Like, I think usually I would just ask coaches to tell me who your rookies are. And maybe I went and checked, but unless I saw like someone that you designated as a rookie on this, on the stats for every quiz meet of last year, I was probably just like, you consider them a rookie. That's good enough for me. Um, but one, I think good example is major league baseball. So let's take a hitter. In, so someone who plays the field and has at bats and hits, so not a pitcher. Um, Major League Baseball says a player should be considered a rookie um, until they have played more than 130 at bats in a season. Well, a starter plays roughly four times that um, in a season. So basically for Major League Baseball, they said if you've played a, just over a quarter of a year, roughly, we're going to deem you to no longer be a rookie. Um, they do not require you to play for a full year, um, but they also um, don't have a cutoff much less than um, one quarter of the year, right? So they made the decision, this is what we want to call a rookie. Now, one thing that they can't really get away from is if a player has played many, many years of professional baseball, but in a different country, and then comes to the major leagues, well, they are considered a rookie in the major leagues, but they're ability and experience level is often very different and much greater from all the other rookies they're playing with. Um, and so that's just kind of a thing that happens. Um, so th you could see that happening in, in PNW Bible quizzing, right? Someone could quiz for four years with a different denomination. And then technically they're probably a rookie when it comes to, um, PNW or CMA quizzing. Um, 
whether or not they care that much to designate themselves as a rookie, because it's not like you get all this special stuff. You know, it's just like we want to recognize you in a slightly different way because you are a rookie. But I don't know. I mean, I definitely wouldn't set the cutoff for a rookie at a full year of quizzing. Um, maybe something like a half year. But then I think your question still remains. Do I consider virtual quizzing to be counting towards any such um, arbitrarily tro- chosen threshold, right? Yeah, right. And um, I probably would. I mean, I guess if, it depends how much time you want to spend on it because I don't think the two are equal, but I also don't think um, the people that have done virtual quizzing are really a rookie. Um, so you could say, like, if you've done half a year of in-person quizzing or a full year of virtual quizzing, you are no longer a rookie um, yeah. or something like that. And I, I, I kind of hearken back to your original comment, which was the, you know, sort of leave it up to the to the coach. And unless there was some sort of bizarre, egregious, you know, like this person is clearly not a rookie, you just kind of shrug and go with whatever the coach says. I think that's sort of reasonable because, I mean, in, in P&W, what does being a rookie mean? I mean, well, literally, it, it only means that you are eligible for the rookie of the meet award. And that's it. Like, there's there's no other there's there's literally no, nothing else that matters. Right. Like we don't we don't prohibit rookies from qualifying for Great West. We don't prohibit rookies from qualifying for internationals. We don't have some sort of scoring differential for rookies like there's 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 no difference of being a rookie for not it except eligibility for the rookie of the meet award you know that that's it right um so the the implication of this debate is pretty it's pretty small right um so i would i would say i i i like the idea of just going with whatever the coach deems is appropriate for their particular organization but that said I think I would lean toward a slightly different interpretation as you, because I would say like going back, not last year, but the year before we quizzed in person through February and then we went virtual. Uh, I would call somebody who quizzed that year, who then quizzed say this year, I would consider them not a rookie because, and this is sort of, let's say last quiz season just didn't exist, right? So we, uh, we went virtual after February, we finished out the season, and then we immediately went back to in-person quizzing. Uh, anybody who quizzed during the in-person portion of that season, I would say, you're not a rookie, uh, you know, the, 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 the next year, you know, even if it was just a single quiz, I would say that was your rookie season, even though you quizzed for only one meet, you know, kind of stuff. Um, but virtual, I think is a little bit different for a couple of reasons in virtual. I don't think we actually awarded a rookie of the meet award. Did we? I don't recall. Yeah. I don't recall per se, but I don't think we did. I mean, I, I mean, we certainly, we tracked averages, we reported averages and we, we tracked, um, and I, when I say we, I mean you, uh, you, Scott, were the statistician, you tracked, you know, where, where teams were and, and where, where individual averages were. And we were, you know, very clear of saying, you know, it's virtual. We are not considered, we're not going to merge virtual with non-virtual, you know, data or anything like that. These are, these are isolated stats, you know, with a bit, big asterisk on the end, that kind of stuff. But I don't think we ever recognized rookie of the meet. And so in effect, if somebody was a rookie, uh, last season during virtual, they couldn't have won the meet rookie award anyway. And it's like, to me, I think quizzing 
isn't quizzing if it's virtual, right? Uh, I think virtual quizzing is somewhat oxymoronic in the sense that, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of quizzing, but it's not really quizzing. Quizzing is memorization, but it's also the in-person competitive aspect thereof, right? And there is a certain energy style moment stress something that exists with in-person quizzing that just doesn't exist outside of that that construct and so uh you know yeah i i certainly agree with what you said in the past about you know learning how to jump i think learning how to jump and timing your jumps is not that hard of a skill to learn i i think uh you know if you if you're practicing virtually and then you show up to an in-person meet uh maybe your first you know few questions or half of a quiz or something like that are going to feel weird uh, jumping on a seat, but then you're going to quickly overcome that and you're going to be okay. But I don't think that is enough in my mind to reduce the rookiness label of the, of the experience. Um, but again, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of like, just go back to, just go back to whatever the coaches are going to, uh, are going to say in terms of, uh, in terms of jumping, I will, I will say something it, it's very anecdotal, but it's something that sort of confirms your prior, uh, Scott. So you were talking about how, you know, if you if you're practicing, I think it was last, uh, podcast episode, you were talking about, you know, if somebody has never quizzed in person is practicing with a team virtually, and then shows up to the meet, uh, learning how to jump accurately is something that can be acquired fairly quickly. Um, my daughter is a great example of that, where uh, she has never, well, she quizzed at Scramble, I guess, but she didn't quiz in a real, you know, quiz meet in person. She didn't practice with her team in person. Uh, and then she showed up uh, in person at this last quiz meet and was nailing jump timing. Now, granted, she didn't have all the material memorized for the meet, so she wasn't jumping on every question, but like she was really precise in her jumping and it happened fairly quickly. Uh, within, I don't know, maybe a quiz, uh, she was actually jumping fairly quickly and 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 fairly accurately for what I would consider to be a reasonable jump speed for based on her memorization of the material. Now, granted, that's just one data point, but I think it, it sort of buttresses your your prior. Right. Well, any other thoughts on this one? I mean, I'm I'm reminded of the scramble meet that PNW holds, and we would have two divisions. Um, it used to be like a rookie and a veteran division, and you had to be a rookie to be in the rookie division. But then occasionally I would have requests from coaches who are like, sure, my quizzer quizzed last year and is not a rookie, but they're a very young seventh grader and didn't do very well last year. Can they be in the rookie division for the scramble beat? And that caused me to think like, well, what are we even doing here, right? <laughs> and that's why <laughs> yeah. I, I ended up just making it the junior and the senior division, and coaches could just register their quizzers into whichever division they wanted. Um, and I remember there was one time where a coach had like a, a very new sixth grader, and they wanted one of their longtime veterans to quiz with them in the junior division, right? Right. And that was fine. And as I, I watched, like that very veteran quizzer – totally held themselves back and only got a few questions because they knew which division they're in. So it was like very obvious this coach like knew what they were doing and trusted like what they're, you know, um, I think that's kind of what you have to do. I remember another time a coach put in a quizzer who was, I think in their second year into that junior division and the quizzer ended up getting a 90 in the junior division at the scramble meet, which is just over three quizzes. And so some people might be like, Oh my gosh, they kind of just were like way better than everyone else. Why were they in this division? Well, they went on to average like a four for the whole year, 
you know? And so sometimes ability levels just kind of put you almost in between, but I don't think that that them getting a 90 made it a poor decision for the scramble meet at all. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, shall we talk about the, the big question of question difficulty? Yes. So, um, it's hard to think to talk about this in a very structured manner. Um, so I guess there are many ways to talk about quiz question difficulty, but I think there are really two main aspects to it. So I'm actually going to give this preface and then kind of get into why are we even talking about this. So the two main kind of components of question difficulty are um, question plus answer length. So this is just the total content required um, for the quizzer to get the question right. And I'm including the question portion because we don't know where the quizzer is going to jump. So if they jump after one word of a 20-word question, well, those last 19 words are now required and kind of like they're just in the answer, right? Um, so for your inexperienced quizzers or quizzers that don't know the whole material, just pure length of required content makes something really difficult, right? If it's a finish these two verses and it is 45 words versus a 12-word finish the verse, it's way more difficult. It's just, just more stuff that they have to get right. Um, but for, say, your internationals quizzer, the difference in difficulty between those two is almost nothing because they know the whole material. Um, so that's one component is question plus answer length. But then the second comp component is the number of syllables it takes the question to become unique. Um, and you can see this at a meet like internationals, right? Um, an interrogative that is unique on the third syllable is a lot harder than a question that's unique on the second syllable. Um, and that's because everyone is fighting to win jumps. People are not so much fighting over do I know the material better? Because in general, the material knowledge is very high and very similar between quizzers. And so the only way to differentiate yourself is to win more jumps. Um, and that's why how long a question takes to become unique is, the, is another component of question difficulty. There's kind of a third, um, which I alluded to in this previous example of international's jumps, but it's your competition. Um, so if your competition is jumping super fast, um, they make you have to jump super fast. Um, but that's kind of the same thing as how long does a question take to become unique, right? Um, so, well, sort of. I mean, it is, but it isn't, right? Because there's a specific different. Let's say that a, quiz, a, a question becomes unique on the third syllable. Um, and, uh, okay, fourth syllable. Let's just say fourth syllable. Let's say a question becomes a, a key uh, or unique enough to answer interrogative question on the fourth syllable. And that question is asked at a district meet in a consolation quiz. There is a pretty high likelihood if somebody in that quiz has memorized that verse, they will be able to jump on it and, and answer the question. If that question shows up in IBQ or Great West or something, you know, at that sort of level, it is fairly probable that it's going to get uh, aired on. Right. So what's your what's your point, I guess? Well, that competition competition increases the difficulty of questions, right? Which seems weird because it's exactly the same question, right? In both contexts, but in the context of, uh, you know, consolations, a fairly mid-level, maybe even a junior uh, quizzer who has memorized that verse has a, a pretty good opportunity of, of getting that question correct, right? Um, but at the internationals level, somebody who has that verse memorized along with all the other material could have 100% of the material 100% memorized and 
will still have a high probability of erring. Sure. But I think here's where I, I label them differently is um, no one has to jump at that speed. So like that's true. It's it's, it's, it's a not, choice. It's it, not it's not difficult if you don't win the jump, right? That's you very, also that's have very no true. chance to get it right. But like, um, I would rather never win a jump and never get any wrong than win every jump and get every one wrong, right? And there's a speed at which that would be the choice. That's very true. But but realistically, at IBQ, you cannot jump on recognition because you'll never win, um, or well, not never. You can't jump on recognition because you will you will significantly hurt your average, right? You have to jump fast enough that you will fail to get enough material, uh, enough syllables to be able to get a question accurate 100% of the time, right? Now, there's a sweet spot somewhere. Like you don't want to you don't want to err to the point where you're erring like 60% of the time, but a zero percent error rate is is actually bad uh, at internationals, right? Right. Um, but here's the thing. Like, if I know that the sweet spot on interrogatives internationals is three syllables, meaning mm-hmm. if I go faster, I'm going to get like two thirds of them wrong. And if I get, go slower, I'm going to win no jumps. So I'm trying to hit that three syllables. There were many quizzes where I looked at my opponents and I was like, you know what? They know the exact same stuff as me, right? Both about the material and what this sweet spot is. We're all going for that same target and that's this quiz is going to be about precision and hitting that target i would get in other quizzes and you knew the districts there and those districts were like we don't know the material so we're just going to try to win a ton of jumps and hope that we get lucky and in those quizzes you're kind of screwed when you know more material because you're like i can't play that game because on average i'm going to lose that game um, right, but to the, right but to the but to the districts that don't know the material well they're fine playing that game because they know that otherwise they win no jumps and so they're like you know what we're fine scoring one point in a quiz four quizzes in a row if then randomly we score 13 points or something um and so if you know what the sweet spot is like you always have that choice of like what speed do i want to play with and at that point you are choosing your level of difficulty. And so to me, how fast another team jumps doesn't make the questions more or less difficult. It makes something else more difficult, which is scoring. But to me, that's different. Okay. I mean, sure. Okay. So maybe competition isn't the right, maybe competition isn't the right word to use, but it's sort of maybe competitive level is the right word to use, right? So like, let's say you, Scott, have 100% of the material memorized and you know it word perfect with references and you are a a total robot and you've just got it completely cold 100% everywhere, right? Um, You then determine based on, you know, the analytics uh, in in your prep work, you've determined that 2.5 syllables is the sweet spot uh, for you know, an interrogative, right? Because it's going to be based on type, right? So right. let's say for interrogative, you figured out that it's 2.5 syllables uh, for whatever quiz year it happens to be. Um, and so you're targeting 2.5 regardless of the universe of competition that you're in, right? Um, at internationals, right? But if you are... So so in internationals, you're targeting 2.5. You are not adjusting your jump speed on you know, uh, interrogative question, but prior to internationals, you have, I don't know how this would happen because you wouldn't qualify for internationals, but let's say somehow you find yourself in a consolation quiz An interrogative shows up. You're not going to jump at 2.5. You're going to jump at say three 
or or you're going to jump at or something seven. that it or seven like you're going to jump on recognition not on optimal uh error rate right um and so competition level does factor it, it it actually causes the question to to range from either ridiculously easy or actually impossible to answer right right okay yeah because you are right that while you do have choice in your jump speed um your competition um has an influence on your range of your possible range of choice um and them limiting your range of choice has an impact on um, overall question difficulty that is presented to you. Yeah, exactly. And I don't want to implicate, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to think that I am inferring or somehow saying that because of this truth being a truth that it matters, right? Like I'm very firmly, I mean, I'm sort of jumping the shark here or not jumping the shark. I'm sort of jumping to the conclusion here. I, I, I don't believe that because this is true, that it should matter in terms of how we write questions or anything like that. Like, like, I think it is a necessary strategic thing that we need to be aware of, but we need all of those question types. Well, and of course, I've, I've totally jumped to the conclusion. So sorry, but keep going from where you were, where you were. But really, like, so we're talking about question difficulty that it's like, there's length, and then there's like, is how unique is it, right? Those are the two things. Um, and this kind of, this is something that Griffin and I and some other people were discussing because over time you definitely hear people say statements like, oh, like it's a good thing that situation questions, um, the quotation portion is limited to two verses because allowing three verse quotations would just be too hard. Or um, you'll hear people say, we don't want that many um, W interrogative questions in a quiz because um, that makes it too hard. Um, and statements like that. And I'm interested in kind of pushing a little bit on what do we think people mean when they say it's too hard? Um, and what are the like outcomes they're either seeing that they don't like or the outcomes that they are not seeing that they would like? Do you want to jump in with thoughts? Well, I mean, I will say when somebody says this question is too hard, right? To me, that says there is some sort of objective bar above which the question hardness is too hard, below which it's not too hard. And so I'm, I'm tempted to ask, well, where is that bar? How do you define that bar? And somebody says, well, it's subjective. I can't. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> I, I want, like, you, if you're going to say the question is too hard, you have to tell me, like, where is where is the bar of too hard and why is the bar at that level right like like what causes something above the bar to be too hard um and i just i have a hard time believing that there's anything there i think ultimately reading between the lines i think the fear is if everything is too hard in quizzing if everything is extremely difficult in quizzing then we are potentially counter mission by causing people who are not you know crazy committed into quizzing we are we are causing them to not you know to be disillusioned from from trying right um so let's say like we're, we're talking about rookies right if you have everything in quizzing being extremely difficult like at the highest hardest level of difficulty 
uh, plausible to do and nothing else, you are disincentivizing rookies, right? You are also disincentivizing evangelism and recruitment and all kinds of other sort of aspects, right? And so I think from that perspective, you could say, yeah, if we optimize our question set to be the maximum difficulty possible in all cases, that we are counter mission in doing that, right? Likewise, if we tell, if we say, okay, we are going to cause our question set to be the easiest possible in all cases, we are also counter mission because we can recruit a lot of people to join in, but then there's no real incentive to get really, really better at the upper ends of the echelon. Like, like the difference between investing 90% of effort versus 99% effort is, you know, a 1% difference or 0% difference. It's like, well, why we're, we're, we're sort of counter mission at that point, right? The idea being, we want to try to encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses as well as they can. So like, okay, you, you therefore need this range of, of question types, everything from, you know, super easy to super hard. And of course, then the question is that comes back around of saying, well, if somebody is saying this question is too hard, is there a corresponding, this question is too easy? Uh, I don't think there is, but if you're going to say that there is some sort of theoretical objective bar that we can't define or aren't, aren't going to define, of a question being too hard, then you got to say, well, okay, if we're at the internationals level, are there questions that are too easy for internationals and shouldn't be asked because they are too easy for internationals? And again, I think that answer is no. Um, because again, I think the competition, uh, the competition itself alters the question difficulty. It's part of the equation, right? Yeah, I would agree. And I, and so I would encourage people to like, if, you have these thoughts or if people like talk to you and say like, man, these questions are too hard. Or maybe they say these questions are too easy. Like ask them like, like how, like what are you judging this by? And what do you think are the negative outcomes that you wish were different? Right. Cause I could absolutely see someone coaching a team of rookies. And every time a finish of these two comes up, everybody sits back. Right. And so right. you're like, Oh, they like know they have no chance on this question. I wish this question didn't exist, right? And that can be a completely valid thought, but that doesn't mean that that is the optimal thing to do for everybody, um, which is a much different conversation to have. I kind of – and I, I think of quizzing uh, – sorry, not quizzing. I think of Awana um, when I knew people who um, would get in Awana, they would memorize their – workbook that was meant to take the year they they would memorize it in in two weeks and then i think there was like um an advanced workbook or like a i can't remember what it was called but you got like an, an extra jewel or something um and they would finish that another week and so you're 15 percent of the way through the year and they're done with literally the entire possible amount that they could memorize and from that point on awana was very boring yeah <laughs> um and I think that's what quizzing is if everything is too easy. And you can obviously design the opposite, right? If every question is to finish these two, I think that sucks. Um, I love that finish these two and quote these two exist, but I also love that there are less of them than there are finish the verses and quotes. Um, I think the mix is great. Um, but I think people see any question that causes any amount of quizzers to either have a high probability of error or not want to try on it as um, a reason that that's a bad question. 
And I think that that's an incorrect conclusion. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, let's see here. So, like, I mean, I remember, I think it was 2013 Internationals, which was Matthew year. Um, we had prepared our quizzers. And there are a ton of quotations in Matthew that start with teacher, comma, which means that there are, th- I think there was, like, between 10 and 20 possible quotations. And they're all fantastic as situation questions. So we're like, oh, my goodness. There's probably... of the possible situation questions that aren't going to be key until the fourth syllable. And we know no one's jumping that slow. So like, are we okay jumping at a pace to win situation questions, knowing that on 5% of them, we basically have a guaranteed error. And I think we had decided like, yeah, there's a speed that we are comfortable jumping on. Well, then the meet comes and there wasn't a single situation question that started with teacher comma, which to me over the course of that many quizzes means that whoever's writing questions decided not to write them, Um, which I think is also a bad outcome because you're deciding that these are bad for difficulty reasons, which the rulebook doesn't have any language about um, difficulty making a question invalid or anything like that. Um, When people are preparing for like questions across the entire, entire range. Um, And I just, I would question the motivation of like, do you think it's bad that some percentage of the time someone would jump on teacher comma and then um, not be able to get it? Is that bad? Is it bad that there was another team that decided not to jump at that pace and they didn't get an error? Because by not writing those questions, you are penalizing the teams that decided to jump at a speed that would get no errors. Well, you're penalizing prep time. Right. Or, or, you know, vice versa. What, what's the difference between penalizing teams that, that put in extra prep time and not providing an opportunity for teams that put in extra prep time to distinguish themselves because of that extra prep? Right. Um, I would argue that those two things are the same. Right. The, the, the outcome is exactly the same. Right. It's a, you know, one's a, a positive way to spin it and one's a negative way to spin it. But the outcome is essentially the same. You are countermissioning uh, things by causing the team by by harming a team that puts in extra prep time relative to a team that doesn't. Right. And our goal in quizzing is to optimize for prep time, right? We want to encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, right? We, we want to encourage additional prep. And so if a team is going to sit there, or an individual for that matter, is going to have uh, no reason to study the material deeper than they already have, you're setting the, you're setting up a situation in quizzing that's just like Awana, right? You're setting up a situation to say, like, I don't want to do a textual analysis of the entire material. I don't need to, because I know that there aren't going to be questions that cause me to need to have that prep time, right? Um, now, you can certainly say, well, okay, not everybody can put in that prep time. Totally agreed, totally agreed. But this is a quizzing sport, right? This is not some sort of like, I don't know, trying to, trying to think of a good analogy or a good word here. And it's escaping me for, for lack of coffee, but this is a quizzing sport. We are engaged in competition to incur and, 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 and the reason we're doing this is to embed God's word in the hearts of quizzers. And we do that by encouraging that, not discouraging that. And we want to encourage that to the maximum, you know, potential that we can. Therefore, you don't want to disincentivize a team from in, you know, adding more prep time, 
Right. I mean, if you think about any other sport, like, you know, even below high school, like there's no conversation of, well, this participant has um, extra ability to excel. And because of that, it's unfair to everybody else. Right. Like, let's say someone's family built a pool at their house. Um, (laughs) Right. You know, it's like, yes, that person now has an easier time excelling at swimming. Um, But that fact doesn't mean we should make a rule that if you have a pool at your house, you're not allowed to. Um, Or, and it doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that we should take all of the pools that we have that we're going to do swimming competitions and cut them in half. It doesn't mean that either. Right. Um, Now, of course, like there are limits. Right. Because you wouldn't want something that is inaccessible to 99 percent of your participants. Right. (laughs) Um, Sure. Sure. And I think that's kind of the beauty of quizzing is that there's like all these levels. And so, like, you know what? Maybe you don't have the time to devote to studying to be able to qualify for internationals like that just might not be your, your reality because of whatever is going on in your life. And I think that's fine. Um, I would think that if it was impossible for someone to study enough to get um, one question every two quizzes, um, then I think we might want to examine something, right? Um, But I don't think that that's the case at all. No, not at all. Well, I mean, I, I see this as fairly analogous to chess. So when I was in junior high, I joined my junior high school's chess team, and I also joined the city chess club, I guess. Um, and they met on like Wednesday night or Thursday night, or maybe it was, I forget some weeknight or something like that at some church basement. And I remember, you know, in, in junior high, uh, getting a ride to chess club and, you know, it's a bunch of adults and it's me, you know, <laughs> you know, and these are, these are, you know, adults, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, and there's me, whatever age I was in junior high, uh, I forget what that age range that is, but you know, I walk in with a chessboard. They didn't have a junior division. They didn't have a, uh, Oh, you're in junior high. So we're not going to play with the ambassant or castling rules or something like that. Like there wasn't a rules difference for the fact that I happened to be playing, you know, as a, somebody from junior high. Right. Uh, now, granted, every single time I went to the chess club when I was in junior high, I lost every single game I ever played, right? But that was because I was playing against people who were, you know, you know, objectively better than I was. In, in the junior high chess club, I would win, I don't know, 80% of my games, 70% of my games, somewhere in that ballpark. And uh, we played by exactly the same rules. We did not, the rules at my junior high uh, club were not dumbed down or simplified relative to the rules played at my, you know, the adult club. It was just that I had an opportunity to win, (laughs) you know, that was, you know, I had a probability of winning that was above zero when I was playing at the junior high level, simply because the competition that I was playing against, the rules were exactly the same. I, I see that very similarly to, you know, um, situations of question, you know, specific question difficulty. There are certain questions that are very difficult. And for a rookie who hasn't invested a lot of time in memorizing can be very difficult, if not impossible to get correct. Right. If you're talking about, you know, uh, quote these two verses 
and you don't have all your references squared away, or you don't have the material, you know, absolutely word perfect in that zone for that particular set of references or something like that, then yeah, okay, a quote two verses is practically impossible. But that's why we don't have quote two verses for every single question type. You know, we have this range um, so that folks who have memorized can distinguish themselves. Folks who haven't uh, can just sit out that particular question. It's not a big deal. And, uh, you know, a great way to look at this is to say like, okay, in our consolation quizzes, do we see a bunch of quizzers who are disillusioned and uninterested in participating? No, we don't. We see quizzers who are optimizing their jumps, targeting interrogatives and multiple answers and occasionally chapter reference questions and that sort of stuff, and generally sitting on CVRs and generally sitting on quote two verses and that kind of stuff. And they're having a good time and they're engaging with the material. And that's great. Right. But that's also why I think um, brackets are crucially important, right? I don't oh, want yeah. to have yeah. 90% of the meet be prelims where a very inexperienced team might face really experienced teams every single prelim. Um, I like it being a half of the meet or 40% or 60% of the meet. And then you get sorted into your brackets, which are going to be closer to your experience level. And then you have greater opportunity to get questions. Um, and yeah, I think absolutely. That, that's critically important, but that has to do with being matched with similar um, ability levels where people will modulate the speeds to what they can do. It's not about changing the questions because um, most of the time the question length is not, the question and answer length is not going to be a hindrance to a quizzer, right? You might get some very long situation quotations or really long quote these two that even given the whole question and five seconds to jump and they jump in 30 seconds, a quizzer's, a rookie quizzer is not going to get, right? But right. I, I can't imagine that that's even more than 1% of the questions in a given year. Um, it's really just about letting people have those opportunities where, um, you know, people aren't jumping at one syllable in a district consolation <laughs> quiz. Right. Well, and I mean, and it's, it's inspiring too. Like if I can sit in a quiz meet and I can look at say 70% of the questions or 80% of the questions and say, you know what? I could have gotten that if, you know, I, I had just won the jump or I could have gotten that if I just studied a little bit more, I can look at the remaining 20 to 30% and say, cool, there's, there's stuff there that like, if I increase my study time, I can go after, th there's opportunities that I see in that very quiz that I could have gone after had I increased my study time. That's motivating to say like, okay, yeah, you know what? I can maybe cut back a little bit on my video games and I can memorize, you know, I can study for say half an hour every day as opposed to 15 minutes once every other day or something like that, right? And I mean, it really, we're not talking about like, hours and hours of time every day. We're really, really not. I, I'm, I'm convinced the average quizzer who puts in half an hour, a few days a week is going to do pretty well at district and may even qualify for great West and beyond. Right. Um, there are very specific scenarios. Like let's say you quiz in an, an awesome district like CMD and you're already averaging a 75 and you want to average um, a 79 but you're a senior in high school doing um, 14 credits of running start community college. It just might not be in the cards for you, right? And that, right, doesn't, right, and that, right. that doesn't mean that the quiz questions are too hard. <laughs> yeah, it just means you're, you know, you, you've basically maxed out a reasonable ability to study. 
uh, and you're in a, you know, CMD is a very competitive district. And so like, yeah, that's just the way things are. And it's not demotivating to have questions that are too hard for you to answer. It would in fact be the opposite for everybody else. Right. And, and I shouldn't say everybody else. It, let's say you're in that, you're that senior who has, is taking 14 credits of running start. And let's say there is a sophomore who has lots of free time and is not doing a lot of extracurricular stuff beyond quizzing. And they put in the extra work to be able to get those more difficult questions. If you say, okay, I'm going to not include those difficult questions. You are demotivating the sophomore to invest that extra time. And that's counter mission. Right. One of my years at internationals, there was an amazing quizzer who got an 83 average at internationals, like just absolutely crazy. Um, If we make all the questions um, a lot easier, right? They're unique quicker. um, There's less uh, material required to get them correct. um, We might have had five quizzers get an 80 in that meet. And to me, I want to know that that quizzer could score an 83 and the rest of us couldn't. I think that's really cool because it speaks to a different level of preparation and making things so much easier that we don't get to know that. I don't know. I wouldn't like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's counter to the mission. I mean, that's really what it is. We're, we're, we would be actively disincentivizing people from putting in uh, extra effort. And I just, I, I think that's awful. Um, I don't want to disincentivize somebody who's not able to put in the extra effort. And that's why we have medium level question difficulty, easier question level difficulty. It's why we have brackets and why we have prelims and why we have cons and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I, I don't want to incentive, uh, disincentivize people at the upper end of the spectrum either. Right. Two more points. So one is you will often hear people say like, I really wish there wasn't more than X number of W interrogatives in a quiz. Um, And it makes me think of, I can't even remember if it was internationals or great West or what, but like we knew there wouldn't be more than say four in a quiz. So if you had heard four, boy, you were going to start jumping faster. And I don't like that. Like, it seems weird that whatever happens in a given quiz um, changes how you jump, right? Like based on what questions have been asked already in this quiz um it just it seemed like a weird thing to happen so i think if if you're a proponent of like i don't think there should be more than x number of w interrogatives well then um everyone gets to completely change their jumping speed when that number is hit and that seems like a weird thing to be encouraging however whatever number of w interrogatives you think is the right threshold right maybe you think it's one maybe you think it's 11 but whatever it is once it gets hit um everyone gets to change their strategy which i think is weird well, and see, I take a, I agree with you, but I'm going to throw out sort of a, a weird scenario. I would not be, well, okay. I would be opposed to this, but I would not be dramatically opposed to it. Um, I would not be dramatically opposed to a rule that said there will be exactly four and no more and no less interrogatives that start with W in a quiz, right? I would be okay with that. If that was an actual rule that was published and everybody knew ahead of, about it ahead of time, right? I am deeply opposed to implementing unwritten rules because you are actively disincentivizing teams from additional study uh, that don't know about those rules, then encounter the practical implication of the pseudo rule existing in practice. I would agree with that, right? Because... Like for me, I think uh, I wasn't the, um, a major fan of increasing finish and quote minimum question type minimums and reducing multiple answers. But regardless of it, like that's a 
rule. So if, if I was a multiple answer specialist, I know how many there's going to be now. I may not like it, but I sure know. And it's enforceable and it's challengeable if it doesn't happen, like all of that. And I think that's the right, principle. And, that's and you can take it into at. your consideration. You can take it into consideration when you're prepping. I think that's the biggest thing. If, if, if there's... If there are if there are rules or 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 preferences that that leak into things that are not documented, and you don't know about them in your prep, you are you are now disincentivized for additional prep because essentially you get up to a particular level and you're just going to stop because any more time would be wasted because of the ambiguity. Right. Um, and I think it is a little bit weird to single out um, W interrogative questions because. There's plenty of other ways to start a question that make it really difficult, like the and he and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of W questions that are very unique on the second syllable. Um, anyway, but so so I think there are interesting implications of specifically picking either easy or hard questions into right. a specific question set um, or at the question writing level. And the big negative downside is unless we objectively write it into the rule book everyone might be facing slightly different tests that they can't prepare for um i do want to throw in one thing um in terms of the w there is an argument to say okay let's say you have no rule and no hidden practice for the amount of w's versus non-w's that go into a set a question set and let's say you are quizzing at the ibq level where you know people are jumping at you know, highly, highly optimized, you know, jumping speeds. So let's say there's one quiz where there are, you know, 14 W starting questions. And there's another quiz in prelims where there's like two or, or zero or something like that. Right. Um, you could make the argument that the quiz that had, you know, 14 W's is objectively harder um, at that particular level of competition because people are optimizing for, let's say, the magical 2.5 syllables or whatever. Please don't read anything into it. That is not necessarily the optimum uh, jumping speed, right? I'm just throwing that out there as a, you know, a, a plausible optimum jumping speed depending upon the material year or whatever, right? Um, so I can see that argument, right? To say like, well, those two quizzes are different in terms of how quizzers are going to respond to those two quizzes and the implications of scoring and fairness between those two things. We need to make things more fair. And I and I have sympathy for that argument. I think I have non-sympathy for the idea of saying, okay, we need to limit or, or lock in you know, W's only towards a, a particular point as the solution. I think the solution is to have pure random generation so there isn't a human influence of like well do i have enough or not enough w questions and having that sort of play a role i want it to be purely random and i want there to be enough prelims where if you end up getting one of these outlier you know high w or high non w uh, quizzes it's one data point in a sea of data points uh, and therefore you can average it out to me Averaging it out is far more fair uh, than otherwise. Now, granted, you know, we can't live in a universe where you can, you can, you know, have an internationals with 100 prelims per team. But I think once you surpass 
some number of prelims, I don't know, like six or something. I don't know. This is a non-scientific number. I'm just making up based on a scientific study I made up in my head. But let's say beyond, so let's say at or beyond six prelims, to me, it seems like it starts to average out. Right. And since you brought it up, I have lots of thoughts here because <laughs> I very much thought what you thought, right? One quiz just kind of overall has harder questions because don't get me wrong. We're talking about question difficulty. There are absolutely harder questions and easier questions. I just think that they have to be incredibly difficult and incredibly easy for me to not want to write them and include them in a question set. I think anything but the far reaches are totally great to include in a question set. Um, but I definitely thought like, hey, in this quiz, there was um, a bunch of interrogatives that were key on the fifth syllable, and then there was a finish these two, and then there was a reference question um, on verse 37 from a long chapter, um, like all this stuff. And then this other quiz was a lot easier. Is that unfair? And I think it um, it can be unfair. Um, I would say two things to that. One is at the internationals level, when everyone is jumping at a very similar speed and accuracy, overall accuracy is close to 50%, then the impacts of differences in question difficulty get real small real fast um, as, as compared to the, the district level. Just because um, – and the main reason there is if you win an internationals quiz, even in prelims, you're doing okay. If you win a district quiz but only get 10 points, you might not be doing okay. So to me um, – an internationals quiz where all the questions are very difficult um, is still fair because winning gets you enough points. Um, but I think that that may not be true at the district level. But we had a long conversation about overall question difficulty. and Because um, what I would do is every single question had a score, a difficulty score. And I tried to make the total score of the 20 questions generated into each quiz to be close. So it could mean that, hey, in this quiz, you get really hard finished questions and really easy interrogative questions. Um, but as a whole, the questions at the total difficulty would be similar. But as we talked about it, we were like, you know what? There are, there are so many things that contribute to difficulty. Um, a quiz that has all of the key verse questions in the first five questions versus in the last five questions has a wildly different difficulty profile from each other, right? Um, all quiz masters are not the same. All opponents are not the same. Um, the way that a quiz develops, and if there are lots of errors up front or correct questions up front, irrespective of whether the questions were difficult or not, like that absolutely changes the difficulty as well. Um, and so we kind of came to the conclusion that we didn't want to be putting all of this work into both calculating the difficulty um, of questions, which um, there were probably lots of problems with how I was deciding to calculate relative difficulty between questions, right? <laughs> there are problems with how I was generating quizzes to having the same total difficulty across quizzes. I'm sure you could poke holes into um, and, and find unintended consequences into what I was doing there. Um, and then there was just all the work needed to make it happen. And our conclusion was, all of that is probably very imperfect and has a very little positive impact in light of all the other things that we can't control related to difficulty that I just went into. Um, and so I don't know if I really have a conclusion, but I think um, it is nice to think that there might be this wildly um, different difficulty levels across quizzes and that it has this really big impact that is unfair. And I just don't think that that's the case. Um, I think if teams have not prepared to know what is a smart 
and a not smart jumping speed, they can get really exposed in a bad in a high question difficulty quiz that might make it feel unfair. Um, but I don't know that it is. Yeah. And then totally the, agreed. And then the last bit is on Quizmaster reading consistency. So I am a big fan of Quizmasters that read deliberately, so not quickly, um, because I want a quizzer who can get eighty percent right at. Um, jumping at 2.25 syllables to be able to jump at 2.25 syllables and win jumps from a quizzer who knows that they have to jump at two and a half syllables to get 80% right. Um, if you have a quiz master that reads really quick, which I, which I, it seems to be very common um, for quiz masters to do, then those two quizzers cannot decide to jump at two and a half versus two and a quarter syllables. And you basically make them into the exact same quizzer, even though their preparation levels are different. And I don't want that to happen. I want to read as deliber- deliberately as I can um, to allow quizzers to jump at the exact speed that they want because of how they have studied, however that is, right? Maybe you need to jump at six syllables. Maybe you can jump at a half syllable. I, it doesn't matter to me, but I want to at least give you the opportunity to pick um, which speed to jump at. And if quizmasters are reading quickly, um, it means that quizzers are unable to jump precisely because of just how fast the master is reading. And I think it also requires less consistency and precision from the quizmaster because they're just kind of going along at a big clip. And who knows, based on your jump, if you're like, oh, you like gave out a whole lot of syllables this time and not a whole lot this other time. But if you're reading deliberately, it is very, very obvious if you read at a different speed, if you didn't stop consistently. And so I think that that could be another motivation of like easy questions that are unique fast and quiz masters that read quickly is it kind of hides a lot of stuff. I think it, it hides inconsistent quiz mastering. Um, and I guess that could be another conversation, right? If we don't think that we can find enough quiz masters to read um, consistently enough uh, for questions that are unique, um, 10% slower than what we're used to, um, then it could also not be worth it to try to write this full range of difficulty of questions. I completely agree with what you said, of course. I want to ensure that our listeners are fully appreciating your point. I'm going to I'm going to provide an illustration uh, to help maybe illustrate your point. So imagine quizzing as it is, except that uh, instead of a quiz master reading a question, what ends up happening is the questions are written on large cue cards, right? Uh, sort of like cue cards that are used for, you know, people that are, you know, uh, doing stand-up comedy or something like a late late show or something like that, right? But they're written or Saturday Night Live might be another one. So you've got the question uh, only, not the answer, but you've got the question written out on a large cue card uh, that is flipped such that the quizzers can't see the cue card and you say question number one is a standard question question number one question and you flip the card over right uh or you even do like question number one is a standard question three two one flip right and so everyone knows when the flip is happening they can count down with you three two one flip right and they know that if they win the jump they will see the entire question because the cue card just remains up there, right? And they can read that question that's there. So imagine that sort of universe, right? Um, what's going to end up happening? 
literally everyone that has 100% of the material memorized is going to jump the very moment and possibly like a millisecond prior, assuming that there was some sort of, well, let's say any jump prior to the flip is a foul, um, if you could figure that out technologically. So everybody's going to jump immediately at the flip. And essentially what's going to end up happening at a, in a, in a meet like internationals where pretty much everybody has all the material memorized, you're going to have a situation where like who gets the jump out of the 12 people who are up on the stage is, is utterly random, right? It's, it's, you know, you might as well just roll some dice and, and just randomly pick somebody and then give them the entire question, right? So imagine that sort of universe. That is an extreme example of what you, Scott, are talking about, right? Now, granted, we're not going all the way there, but essentially when a quiz master reads very, very rapidly, what they're doing is they are compressing the question down and reducing the, um, basically cutting off the difference of the uh, of the hyper prepared quizzers right you're compressing the quality option of that question and bringing it along the spectrum toward the you know the absurd example that i that i proposed right now granted you're not going all the way to the example and granted my analogy is you know a fallacy of the absurd but it's trying it's it's an illustration to try to express or explain the implications of compressing the reading of the question you're essentially mean you're basically saying to the top echelon of quizzers that top 10 or 20 percent you're saying i am going to take the difference of your skill level and compress them into something that is effectively random so at a district meet does it make a lot of difference well it kind of depends on the district right um it kind of depends on the quiz and and whatever at a con level uh quiz uh, at a weaker district does it make a big difference probably not much but at internationals it makes a giant difference and it's demotivating to that upper echelon of quizzer Right. Like there was uh, the year that Great Lakes won, they had a quizzer who was as prepared on chapter reference questions as I've ever seen. And they could jump a full like half syllable or a quarter syllable faster than anyone else with actually better accuracy, right? Because of prep level. Well, if a quiz master is reading so fast that other quizzers can jump um, and get the same amount of material, um, they all kind of get the same accuracy rate. And it's um, you're punishing the quizzer who has done more work because they're unable to pick a more precise speed to jump at. And I think that's often what I look at is people will say like, but look at who this is good for. And they don't look at who this is not good for. Um, one thing I forgot to mention when you were talking about quizzers need to be quiet on the stage after a question has been read. Um, the way I always viewed awarding fouls was I'm not like just looking for the quizzers who I can call a foul on by the letter of the law. Like, um, I am trying to keep a qu the quiz, um, I guess, like, mood and flow and everything fair for everybody. And if I don't call a foul, as prescribed by the rulebook, I am actually penalizing the people who did follow the rulebook. It's not that yeah, I'm being exactly. harsh on the people that didn't. I'm penalizing the people that did follow the rule book. This is what I would tell my quizzers. I was like, you jumping at the speed that we want and not jumping at a faster speed. Um, if, like, if you jump at the faster speed, you are depriving another team from winning the jump at a bad speed. You are not letting them do the bad thing. 
Um, and then this is kind of the same thing, not letting them do the bad thing, but like as a quiz master, I want to let you do the good thing. If you can jump faster than everybody else and still get questions right, boy, do I want to let you do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I don't want to make it so that it's impossible. Like we've been at a meet where two finish the first questions back to back. One quizzer gets three syllables, next quizzer gets six. And they were jumping at the same speed. Like at Great West, y'all kind of just jump at the same speed. Um, and they got wildly different amounts of material because of the Quizmaster inconsistency. And that's not really fun for either quizzer, you know? Right. Well, and on that bombshell, we should probably close things up. Um, we are a little bit over time, but a lot of really uh, cool and important, I think very important material that we talked about today. So if you disagree with anything, uh, and we've actually talked about a fair number of things that you could disagree with, uh, honestly. Um, now, obviously, I think we're going to disagree with your disagreement, but we still want to hear from you very much. Uh, we want to hear uh, disagreeing emails, and we will, uh, you know, if you if you send us a disagreement uh, via email, we will treat you fairly uh, and, uh, you know, read what you write uh, on the podcast, unless you say, please don't, <laughs> you know, read it on the podcast. But we very much want to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And you can also talk to us or chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Slack, uh, Bible Quizzing Slack in the Inside Quizzing Forum. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks to all, all of our listeners. And thank you, Griffin. Thank you.